Welcome to Green Apple Pod, for people who want to think about education a little bit differently. I'm Jessica Enderlin-Natsum, a public school teacher and PhD candidate in education policy. I've spent nearly a decade observing and investigating how to make education the thing that's going to make our whole society happier and healthier. Now, I'm fighting to make that our reality. Are you new here? If so, I'm glad you're here. But just so you know, this series makes way more sense if you listen to the episodes in order. You can find the first episode, COVID and Teacher Retention, and get started there to get the full story. We'll be right here waiting for you when you get back. If you're in any way connected to the news or social media, it is impossible to ignore the rhetoric around burnout. We've seen the hashtags, hashtag the great resignation, hashtag teacher quit talk, and more, all talking about people getting fed up with their jobs and venting that they're ready to quit. We're all hearing these stories from teachers too, and we've already talked about some of the reasons that teachers might leave. From the isolation of a rural town, to not enough money, to an unmanageable workload, the reasons that teachers leave are varied. And part of that is because for many teachers, Teaching is an extremely emotional occupation. We are constantly taking in information and reading the classroom. Where are our students' energy levels? How are their moods? Is everyone getting along? Is everyone on task? Someone isn't here today, are they okay? Meanwhile, we're constantly having to monitor our own mood, our own energy, and what we project onto our classroom. If you've never taught before, I say this with all the love in my heart for my students, But kids are like sharks with blood in the water. And by that, I mean they pick up on everything. If you're in a good mood, they know it and hopefully they'll absorb it. But if you're in a bad mood, they will definitely know it. And there's a very good chance they may absorb that as well. So I thought about the tone I wanted my students to exist in when they were learning in my class. I wanted the room they were in to be happy and safe and encouraging and I knew it was up to me to set that tone. But while I was constantly trying to project positivity, what a lot of my students may not know about that time is that I was exhausted all of the other hours of the day. I felt like I was wearing a mask, not the COVID kind, like the theater kind, all day long, trying to stage this positive environment in my room. I don't say that to say my happiness was inauthentic. Generally speaking, I was very happy, but I felt like whenever there was an inconvenience or a misbehavior, or if I'd slept poorly the night before, I couldn't show my kids my frustration or get upset. I was the adult, and it was my responsibility to keep things pleasant and to keep things light so that they could feel happy and safe. It really wasn't uncommon for a kid to tell me that I, quote, did too much or that I was too awake or too energetic or any of those things at 8 o'clock in the morning. But when I went home in the afternoons, I was exhausted. I felt like I'd been starring in an eight-hour play all day long. But it wasn't a play. It was an improv. And while sometimes the improv was fun or even hilarious, other times it wasn't. In the same one-hour class period, a student could get in a fight with her boyfriend on the phone. Another could spill their breakfast all over their desk in the floor. Another could do a backflip off a lab bench, which is impressive now, was terrifying at the time. We could have a fire drill, and the list of things goes on and on, and this is just the standard list. There were other things, harder things. Kids getting bullied over their hair, 
a pair of teenagers who got in a fight at lunch that required the police getting called, a student getting arrested for coming to school high, a kid who disappears for a month, fearing deportation, a student called into the hallway out of class to hear that their father just died. I've seen all of these things, and more, and more than once, and I'm not the only one. And while I, as a teacher, always tried to keep things positive for my kids, you can't be positive in the face of those things. It's not authentic. It's not healthy. But the reality is we internalize those things. We take them on, and the burden gets heavy. It's exhausting. It's depressing. It's upsetting. And it's a big contributor to burnout. And how well can we teach when we're burnt out? How long can we expect teachers to keep teaching through this stress and compassion fatigue? These are the questions we'll ask today on Green Apple Pod. This is episode five, fake it until you make it. Like I said earlier, teaching can feel like a mix of masquerade and improv. But if we can't keep some level of positivity, we're not gonna be able to make it. And I don't say this to say that teachers must be happy and smiley and positive all the time. Let me be clear. I'm not here for toxic positivity. So in instances where teachers get so run down by the workload, the misbehavior, and the burdens our students bring into the classroom, it can be extremely difficult to stay positive in our work, which we then feel guilty about because we're supposed to be positive for our kids, which then makes us even more upset, and then we get burnt out. Now, my first guest today experienced burnout that resulted in him exiting the classroom after one year, despite several years of work in schools prior to becoming a full-time teacher. Right now, I'd like to introduce you to Greg. Growing up, you know, in high school and college, I always liked working with kids. Um, I always felt comfortable around them, and I've always felt I could get along and relate to them somewhat easily. So after college, I did a year of volunteer service, which took me to Chicago, Illinois. Uh, so I did that. I interviewed, and I ended up taking a teaching, kind of like a teacher assistant volunteer position at this local preschool through eighth grade Catholic school in Chicago. And so I wasn't teaching. But when I was in the classroom, I was doing one-on-one tutoring with a lot of students. And I would also be a, kind of an in-classroom aide, going around, making sure students were getting their questions answered, um, helping them progress through the work and comprehend and those types of things. And that was really fun. I really liked that. That was mostly with third and fourth graders, but I did stuff with the preschool. I did stuff with the eighth grade that whole year long. And I really enjoyed it. But I did that whole year at that school. You know, I, I loved most of it. And overall, it was a good experience. In that year, I met met a girl from Arkansas. So in that year after this volunteer program, I moved back up to Green Bay and got a job as a paraprofessional in a local high school, which was a lot of fun. So really similar to the previous year. But throughout that year, I was always thinking I need to get to Arkansas somehow. And I really like working in education. So what am I going to do? How can I make this happen? And that's when, you know, come across kind of those alternative teaching license programs. Um, where you work for a couple of years as a teacher, if you, you know, graduate through it all, then the state that you're in will give you that, you know, real teaching license. And so I found one particular to the state of Arkansas, similar to uh, Teach for America, and it was going to be a three-year teaching program. And after that, you'd be given your Arkansas teaching license. So I thought, well, this is great. I can move to Arkansas. I can be with the woman I love. I can be trying, you know, these first steps down the path of a career that I've always been interested in. So let's, let's go for it. Let's do it. 
Greg really enjoyed helping kids, especially those who needed a little extra support. The little idea that had always been in the back of his mind was about to become a reality. He was placed in a small rural charter school. It's a popular one in the Delta, but it's fraught with turnover thanks to its location. Remember, rural schools are tough to staff. It's hard to get young people to move there. Greg only moved there because his fiancée, now wife, was from that area. But it's also a student population that is majority low income and lots of other stacked up inequities that make it difficult to staff. Greg started there in August of 2015. And so were you teaching history to fifth graders or what were you teaching? I was doing, yes, social studies and science. Okay. So I would do a couple of days of one and then a couple of days of the other, um, which was fine. Of course, history was in social studies. That was no problem. That's just, that was my degree in college. And I, and I have a natural affinity for that subject. That was, that was no problem. But the science thing was kind of, I had to kind of learn as I went as well, as far as the content is concerned. But yeah, definitely science wasn't my you know preferred content. But again, that was, Greg, we have this fifth grade position in this region that you want to be in. And you can teach social studies, but they also need you to teach science. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like you don't have much of a, I didn't have much of a choice. I had to go for it because I had some other variables to consider. This is pretty common with non-traditional licensure programs. They're often designed to fill gaps in high-need schools, and as we've said about 10 million times already, science teachers are hard to find, so often people like Greg end up teaching it to get a license. There are some pros to this, like, you know, at least the kids get a teacher, but there are also cons, like the kids get a teacher who may not be prepared for the subject, and a teacher can very quickly feel overwhelmed learning a new subject while teaching it. Another thing that's important to remember about Greg is that he had experience and exposure to classrooms before he started teaching. Remember, he spent two years working as full-time support staff in high-need schools, so you might think he had a vague idea of what he was getting into. But the reality was Greg worked in schools that had full-time support staff to lighten the load for teachers and help kids. The school Greg now worked at full-time as a teacher didn't have that same resource. So now he was doing all the support staff work while working as a full-time teacher, and it quickly became exhausting. The one thing that you just, uh, at least I certainly wasn't prepared for, was the complete management of a classroom. So in my previous experiences working in education, I was never 100% teacher. I was never the one fully responsible for content and handouts and grading and, you know, tracking progress. I was never, I'd help out with that, but I was never the full person in charge. Um, and that's one thing that, that was the hardest part is I was given the, you know, these, how many students were the 90 students, more or less. Wow. Three different classes of fifth graders. And I had, you know, I, like you said, I taught some school for a little bit, but again, that was with high schoolers and there was maybe 10 of them. And, you know, I had, I always felt like I could relate with high schoolers a little bit easier, but I didn't have any sort of setup or skills to lead a, lead a classroom of 50, 10, 11 year olds that are all going through puberty at the same time. And so those were skills were absent. So I knew very early on into the school year, you know, we started in the beginning of August and it wasn't, you know, end of September, you know, by the latest mid October, when I realized this, I don't know if I can do three years of this and get a teaching license. It was already at that point, like the days were long, the weekends were short. 
and you're just constantly thinking about it and dreading about it. And you, you feel a sense of obligation because you sign a contract and you commit yourself to that year in a school that has a lot of turnover with staff, you know, teachers, especially, you know, I took that commitment seriously. I didn't want to just be another person to pop into these students life for a little bit and then pop back out because they had probably had that so many times in their life. And that really, I didn't want to be one of those people. Um, so I had, you know, I, I went in with really strong intentions and a really strong desire to go in and like be a positive force in these students' lives. Greg is extremely open that from the beginning, he struggled with classroom management. He had only taught six weeks of summer school in addition to his two years as a professional support staff. He had never been in charge of full classes of kids before, and he wasn't sure what to do, and there wasn't anyone there to tell him what to do. So if, you're, if you don't have that control from like the first week, you're never going to gain that, the control that you kind of want to have in your classroom. So that, I think that's one thing that really set me up for failure is I just I didn't have the training on how to control a classroom and monitor a classroom. So there was, there was really no hope for me from the beginning. I just didn't, I just didn't know it. Mm-hmm. It seems like the primary source of your stress was this lack of control in the classroom. Um, classroom management, oh, yeah. some people call it, but legit, there is an art mm-hmm. to controlling oh, yeah. a classroom. It's just like when you see a public speaker, they can control the audience and keep them engaged. Mm-hmm. And so when you say lack of control, was it behavioral issues? Was it um, failure to understand lessons? Like what? If you're comfortable, do you mind just elaborating yeah. on that a little bit? So really, it was just kind of behavioral stuff. Um, and again, I had 30 to 35 students at a time. And that's 30 to 35 personalities and 30 to 35 chances that they don't get along with each other that day. You know, they, those two who normally fight all the time may be getting along for some reason some day, today. And these two students who are normally just fine may now be picking on other kids for some reason today. So it was mostly behavioral stuff. Um, and you're just playing whack-a-mole. It felt like the content was fine. I could learn the content and I enjoyed talking about the content, but it was, it was classroom management skills that I didn't have. And I don't even know how you teach that. How do you prepare somebody for that? I don't know. It's almost, it has to be trial by fire. There were so many things Greg had wanted to do for his students. He had wanted to be a positive influence. He had wanted to create engaging lessons and he wanted to forge strong relationships with them. But how could he do that when half his time was spent learning curriculum as he went while trying to keep 30 kids engaged in a lesson while also trying to prevent 30 kids from descending into massive chaos? So my teaching style, I don't know if I had a style. I, I was probably focused on relationships. I didn't really have in the back of my mind any prior techniques that I had seen you know, with that third and fourth grade teacher in Chicago or with those high school teachers in Green Bay. You hope these I hoped if I can just build these good relationships with students, then they'll come to be good students and, and, and be enjoyable to have and enjoyable to teach. But it's hard to get to know 90 different kids on a, on a personal basis that quickly. But again, once, he, once I got in the classroom and I realized what I was actually put in front of, a lot of other things kind of had to take a back seat and like survival mode just had to kick in. And so, you know, you're not able to cultivate those relationships as deeply or as quickly as you want to because you just want to you want to make it to your break. Before long, the physical exhaustion translated into something else. 
guilt. Greg began to worry about his students and the impact he was having on them, which only compounded the stress he was experiencing. It was hard to tell if you were being that positive impact or having that positive influence on them um, because it just felt that there's that daily push and pull and struggle between you as the teacher and them as the student and, and, and trying to get comfortable in those roles. And I, <laughs> yeah, I, it, 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 it did not go well. Um, you know, constantly doubting yourself and, but you're just so exhausted and so stressed out. Like you, you don't want to reflect. You don't have the brain capacity to reflect on how to improve. You just get burnt. I got burned out so quickly that I just, I couldn't fulfill that role to the level I wanted to. By the time the second semester started, the anxiety was severe. Greg was managing nearly a hundred kids throughout a nine hour day. Fun fact, many charter schools are not eight to three. They have extended hours and more days on the calendar. So Greg was working more days and more hours than a typical teacher, often with higher expectations. But how he didn't have a coach every day or every week coming to check in on him or teach him how to grow. He was an island, or rather he was drowning near an island, trying to figure out how to keep his head above the water. By the start of the second semester, so after Christmas break, like the stress was manifesting in my body physically. Pretty much every morning I'd wake up at like 4 or 4.30 and I'd already have a really bad stomach ache. And then I'd be up, you know, already dreading about the day after going to bed at nine. So yeah, I had, you know, limited sleep. I'm waking up and I'm already not feeling well. And now I have to go and do this really hard job for eight hours, nine hours a day. And at one point, it was right before the students were going to come in and eat their breakfast. And I get in the classroom organized and my, the, the lead fifth grade teacher came in just to check up and say, you know, but how's it going, Greg, you ready to go? And I just started crying. And she did not, you know, expect that at all. Um, but just the year had just built up. I couldn't hold in that uh, emotion any longer. You know, we saw it, sat and talked for a little bit. And I just told her, I don't know if I can last till May. I really don't. You know, it's, you know, you're, you're just pushing this rock uphill every day. And I'm just not cut out for it. And, the, you know, my, my classroom is not consistent. It, 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 I, I can't tell if my students are really engaging. You know, I don't think they respect me. You know, it's hard to teach the content and get students to engage in the content. And if all I'm doing is putting out fires every five minutes, you know, this kid's poking that kid. This kid looked at me funny. This kid called me that. That was the struggle every day. Greg experienced what so many teachers experience in high-need schools, trying to learn to teach while managing classrooms full of high-energy middle schoolers while living in a brand-new place. And it was overwhelming, and he felt trapped. What else could he do? Where else could he get a job in the rural Delta? But he was also filled with guilt. He didn't want to be the teacher who left the kids he had come to work with. He didn't want to give up. But at the end of the day, he didn't know how he could keep going. In the end, Greg's school approached him with a compromise. A few weeks after telling his lead teacher how he felt, he was approached by the lead teacher and the principal with an offer. If he could keep teaching his subjects through state testing, which was about six weeks away, they would move him to administrative duties, behind the scenes work like operations and logistics, graduation, end of year field trips, and teacher appreciation week. Greg took the offer, wanting to fulfill his contract as much as he could, but knowing he didn't have the heart to stay in the classroom for the entire extended year. 
So, I mean, I was grateful I got to stay at the school and still see the kids and help the kids in a different capacity. But I did feel bad ultimately that I was just another kind of person who moved down here with good intentions, but just kind of got chewed up by the, the grind that is education. It's almost indescribable. Like people don't understand how tough teaching is until you're actually doing it. I think a lot of the critics of teachers, a lot of times are folks that have not taught themselves or may not even know anybody that has taught. And even if they do know somebody that has taught, the experience of actually being the teacher doesn't do justice to the stories that the teacher friend is telling you. So yeah, it's a, it's probably the most noble profession out there. And it probably uh, takes the most noble of people to stick with it for 30 years. Unfortunately, Greg's story is not unique. People who want to be teachers, who are excited to make a difference for kids, get chewed up and spit out within a year all the time. And we have to ask ourselves, could it have been different? Would a support staff person, a lighter schedule, smaller class sizes, a coach, anything, would it have made a difference? There are a lot of people who think more specialized mentoring could help new teachers adjust, get better, and even thrive. But unfortunately for Greg, that wasn't the case. He was fortunate enough to have a supportive administration who could get him a plan when he was struggling, but who didn't have enough resources to get him help that would address the root cause of the problem. His struggles managing 30 to 35 middle schoolers all day, every day. But classroom management isn't the only thing that leads to burnout. While it is difficult and does its fair share taking teachers out of classrooms, it's just one piece. Like we heard from Greg, there's a lot of guilt and that emotion is heavy. It's another heavy piece of the puzzle, but there's even more. Another piece is called compassion fatigue. Compassion fatigue is a common phenomenon in people who work with other people, especially people who are struggling on a daily basis. It's teachers, it's social workers, it's healthcare workers. Basically, if you see someone else in pain for long enough, you start to take on their pain. And this is the part of the story where I need to introduce you to Sarah. So I started out as an elementary education major, did about a year of that program, decided it wasn't the right fit for me. I observed uh, middle school English as a second language class in Springdale. And I decided that's what I wanted to do which is interesting because it's not what I ended up doing. But <laughs> I was like, this is it. Watching students who were learning English as a second language was really empowering to me. I was really sort of emotionally moved by students and their bravery and doing something that as an adult, I really couldn't fathom. And for me, learning a second language was really scary. Speaking in that second language was terrifying to me. Reading and writing, I could do all day. But speaking was, I mean, I just froze sometimes. So watching like 11 and 12-year-old doing it all the time was really amazing to me. And I was like, this is what I want to do. So I dropped uh, my elementary major, decided I would just major in Spanish. Uh, and then got close to graduation and was like, how do I become a teacher now? really didn't want to do the MAT program, 
So I started looking through non-traditional teaching pathways, uh, found Teach for America and Arkansas Teacher Corps, which at the time had just welcomed their first cohort. Uh, I ended up applying for both. Skipped my TFA final interview to um, just really put all my eggs in the ATC basket, and that worked out. <laughs> so uh, after graduating college, I joined the Arc Teacher Corps. For anyone who doesn't know, I grew up in Fayetteville, the predominantly middle upper class white community. I love is predominantly black, predominantly low income, and it was just. It was a huge culture shock for me. One, because I was young and naive. Two, because I was incredibly privileged and in a lot of ways didn't recognize my privilege. And because of that, I also sort of developed these really disempowering mindsets about where I was going to be. Um, and then three, just because it is just, there are differences, cultural differences that do exist. And I had not had really any exposure to what those might be. So coming to Pine Bluff was first just such a challenge. I wasn't prepared for a lot of sort of the inner work that would go on. And so that was really exhausting, fulfilling, but exhausting. And over my time in the classroom, as sort of I, my like consciousness started to increase I found that I loved my students. I loved interacting with them on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, I loved even the act of teaching. I didn't mind calling parents and families and staying late and going to games. Those were things that were fine for me. But throughout those three years, as, as I said, as that consciousness sort of started to, to raise, I started to see so many issues that I could not have imagined when I first started as a first year teacher in 2014. And it just sort of got to be like insurmountable for me to continue teaching while I could see these challenges. Sarah was placed in Pine Bluff, a town we heard about earlier, but she was actually placed in another district from Monica's that has since been consolidated, meaning it was absorbed into another district. But Sarah was a rock star teacher, the kind of teacher you want your own children to have. She was warm. She was kind. She was prepared. She worked hard. She held them to high expectations. She genuinely cared about them and their success. But as she watched the challenges they faced on a day-to-day -day basis, she could only stomach it for so long. On the one hand, I would sort of see these systemic barriers in my students' lives that I couldn't do anything about, that at 15, 16, 17 years old, they couldn't do anything about, but that they were being held to the fire for. And it's, it's very privileged even to say this, but the emotional turmoil of that for me was so difficult because I couldn't, I couldn't figure out how I was supposed to tell my students that it was going to be okay or help them prepare for obstacles that were coming that were a direct result of things out of their control. Can you talk a little bit more explicitly about what some of those barriers were for people who may not be familiar with what goes on in Pine Bluff and just in these types of schools? Sure. So for example, when I 
started in 2014, uh, my school had recently been uh, released to local control, which means the State Board of Education had dissolved our school board um, because of financial distress and academic distress. So the school was spending more money than they were generating. So there were concerns about, you know, the longevity, how long can the school survive without state intervention? Um, but then we were also in academic distress, which is just sort of an umbrella term for your students aren't meeting the test scores we think they should be meeting. Uh, you need more support. So when I first came to Pine Bluff, the district had just been released back to local control. That was very short-lived. I started teaching in August. By mid to late September, we were back under state control. So the local school, school board was again dissolved, which meant that virtually any decision that really impacted the school, the teachers, the students, the community members was coming from the state department. I think well-intentioned, a lot of uh, actions that didn't make sense for our specific context. So we might be prescribed a curriculum to use that was not on the grade level my students were on. We had severe teacher shortages. So my first year I taught eighth grade. Most of my kids were far below an eighth grade reading level. So being required to put curriculum in front of them that was beyond where they currently were really set them up for failure in a lot of ways. I was also a first year inexperienced teacher with seven weeks of training under my belt and truthfully not qualified to take students who are far below grade level and get them to grade level in a short amount of time. So you're getting curriculum directives. You're getting directives on discipline. So you might have kids who are absent for various reasons. Parents both work. They're, the kid is responsible for getting themselves and their younger siblings to the bus stop at six o'clock in the morning because they live an hour and a half out of town and there are no adults home to make sure that they get there. So you've got, you know, 14-year-olds who have adult-level responsibilities and they're getting punished when they don't come to school. They're getting punished when they sleep at school because they were up all night taking care of younger siblings or I have kids who are working as young as junior high. So there are just some things that, you know, a 14-year-old didn't ask any of that. And yet they're trying to show up and take care of those things. And also, I don't want to paint the picture that, like, that only exists in Pine Bluff. That happens everywhere. Um, we just have a really high poverty rate. So I, there are lots of students who are living in situations that require them in a lot of ways to be adults in their household and teachers are expected to deal with them in a sort of prescriptive manner that is not always based on community relationships, personal relationships, what is culturally appropriate and not appropriate. Um, and a lot of that information is coming from outside sources who, again, I think have been in but don't really intimately know the details of the community. And so there's often a conflict there. None of the issues that Sarah just described are new or unique. In fact, they happen daily and all of her students are affected by them. 
But for someone like Sarah, someone who got into education, who loved teaching and was driven by her strong relationships with kids, it was hard for her to balance her job and her frustration at the system that was pitted against her students. It feels weird to say it coming from where we come from, but at the same time, it's all of these things and then saying, all right, now write a kid up because they fell asleep in class. It's like, why would I do that? Why would I perpetuate that? I'm here because I want to help kids learn and that's right and help them learn yeah if they're not in my class then what's going to happen or we had a uniform policy so that would be a pretty consistent issue if a kid's shirt wasn't in or they were wearing a hoodie well I had a student I would put like a content warning on this because it could be disturbing for somebody I had a student who had carved that into her arm and that's why she was wearing a hoodie she didn't have a jacket with a zipper at home but she didn't want anyone to see what she'd done to herself. And I was supposed to write her up because she wouldn't take her hoodie off. And in my mind, I'm like, she has much deeper concerns right now. And I have much deeper concerns for her right now than whether she'll take the sweatshirt off. So it just, for me, it was things like that, where it was just like, why we are saying that we want to help kids and that we value children as human beings but the way that we are being asked to show that doesn't translate to me and it doesn't translate to students that's a deep and very raw visualization but that's what it is on a pretty regular basis is there's these deep deep dark issues but meanwhile you're tardy so let's make sure you get a write-up for that right right and I would say because the the train stopped on the tracks for 15 minutes. So how, I mean, I would have been not only on time, but early if the train hadn't stopped on the track at whatever time. So you want me to leave my house at seven o'clock in the morning to try to accommodate for that. And then if it doesn't stop that day, then I get here before campus is unlocked. And then, you know, what, so it just sort of becomes this, like, what do you want kids to do? What is a reasonable expectation for children, really? Yeah. Uh, So you get through the first three years, you're kind of battling with this. You've finished up with Arkansas Teacher Corps. Emotionally, I imagine you're pretty drained. And opportunity comes up to actually become a mentor for Arkansas Teacher Corps. Can you walk us through that process in the next couple of years there? Yeah. So throughout my fellowship, I worked as a mentor during Summer Institute, which is, uh, it was a six-week residential program when I started. By the time um, I returned as a mentor, it was a seven-week program. Um, So during those seven weeks, fellows live on site somewhere. It varies depending on year. They teach part-time and they receive uh, professional development hours part-time. And mentors really just serve as mentors. They review lesson plans. They um, sort of plan coaching conversations, debriefs. They really just support that teacher through the process. So I'd done that for a couple of summers. I couldn't see being in the classroom in my immediate future. Um, Again, I love students. I love teaching. I loved a lot of the things that went on in my classroom, but it was just, for me, I had to really prioritize my time and what was going to be best for me in that moment. And I knew the classroom wasn't that. So this opportunity came along to do that coaching full time. 
Yeah. Sarah left the first time to go be a coach for new teachers. Emphasis on the first time. But Sarah left because she was already getting burnt out after just three years of teaching, and she felt like she could still have a great impact on kids in another way, now as a coach for new teachers who could support them through their first three years in the classroom. Um, So then for the next two years, I coached uh, cohorts of teachers from Strong in the South Central region, all the way up through Blytheville in the North East region. So I would pretty much just spend most days in uh, fellows' classrooms, watching them, planning conversations, uh, having coaching combos at the end of the day, bookending my weeks with office work and sort of administrative tasks. Sarah stayed in that role for two years, but by the end, she was disillusioned again. She found that she missed her students, and she wasn't able to help the teachers she coached solve all their problems thanks to the systemic inequities in their own schools. So after two years of coaching, when she saw her old job was still open in her old district, it had never been filled in the first place, she reapplied and she went back into the classroom. She started back at her old job at her old school in August of 2019. So that year I taught 10th grade English and 11th grade English. And I loved it. I loved my students. It was a little bit weird. All the students I had taught before had graduated. So the students I was teaching, I'd seen before um, when they were in middle school. And some of them actually did recognize me. Um, but it was a little weird. It was, you know, the first time I was back in the classroom and all of my kids had graduated. And so in some ways, I felt like a new teacher again. But fortunately, a lot of the students knew who I was. Their siblings had had me, their cousins had had me before. So it was really great to get back into the classroom. and then. Uh, Spring of 2020 happened, and that was not great. Sarah's first year back in the classroom coincided with the year COVID happened. She was back caring for her students, teaching them when the worst disaster in school history hit. And now, not only was Sarah scared for herself and for her students, she was scared for her own child. Yeah, so I feel like I have to put some personal context in here. because otherwise it's not a complete picture. So I found out that I was pregnant in December of 2019. In March of 2020, um, we get the notification that there's patient zero for COVID has tested positive in Pine Bluff. The next day, we get a notification that the Pine Bluff School District and the Dollary School District are both going to go virtual for. The remainder of um, the gap until spring break. I go home, I get a call from my principal. She asked for a copy of my seating chart with approximately how many minutes I spent within six feet of each student. Um, because it turns out patient zero was a relative of one of my students. So Whoa. I <laughs> was identified as a potential close contact. So just you know, to put that in context. We don't know anything about COVID and pregnancy at this point. So I'm sort of in this like heightened emotional sense anyway. My hormones are like, we're growing a human here. And then on top of that, we have this additional stress of, I don't know if if I'm sick, if I'm not sick, if, you know, if I am sick, is the baby in danger? Am I in more danger? So there are like a lot of questions going in my mind. 
I'm also worried about my students. You know, we don't know very much about this. The COVID-19 pandemic hit Arkansas on March 13, 2020, Friday the 13th. Sarah was pregnant when they found out, so now on top of worrying about her students, she had to worry about her unborn child, Addison. It was a terrifying time when no one knew what was safe. Could we just take our groceries in the house or did we have to wipe them all down? If I was within six feet of an infected person, was I guaranteed to get it? Would hospitals be overrun? Would schools be shuttered in the fall? We just didn't know. And for Sarah, void of the unknowing, coupled with her sincere concern for her kids, it was intense. I think I'll never forget the day we got the letter. Somehow there's some miscommunication. It's on social media that the other big school district in Pine Bluff is going to be out until spring break, but our school doesn't get that. But we share a superintendent. So we're just kind of like, what's going on? You know, teachers are texting, hey, did you hear that this is happening? Do you think it's going to happen here? And so there's a lot of confusion on the teacher's end and kids are like, well, my cousin goes to such and such school and they're going to be out. And then we're like, well, I don't know. I don't know. We're just going to do what we do, I guess. And then a few hours go by and we receive documentation, but the teachers have still not directly been communicated with. So it's these flyers that we, these letters that we pass out to students. And if you haven't read the letter, you don't know what's happening. Of course, every teacher reads it when we get it, but the office aides are coming around door to door. Hey, distribute these to your whatever period class. So at no point have teachers been directly, explicitly told this is what's happening. Mm -hmm. So there's sort of also this like personal anger and hurt and frustration where it's like, come on, when are you going to keep like clue me into what's happening here? We've already had a really emotional year with bomb threats, shooting threats, and we have frequently, again, not been involved in any of that communication. We're learning about this from students. So there's sort of this like anger and frustration by this response where, again, whoever's making decisions is doing the best they can, trying to get information out to the right people as soon as they can. And somehow teachers are just getting lost in the shuffle. So kids are like running, literally running around the hallways with these flyers like, what? Oh my gosh. We're not coming back until after spring. I mean, they're like, they are living it up. They are so And teachers are just like, I don't care if it's the classroom we're supposed to be in sit down somewhere, like chill out. We're going to come back. And then of course we don't come back, but we don't know. So that all happens. I get called. I, you know, am a a potential close contact. We're sort of just waiting it out. And we still have kids who don't have internet, don't have wireless devices to use. Um, They definitely don't have curriculum materials. So then over spring break, uh, several members on the leadership team do what we can to figure out some kind of curriculum alternative until we get back into the classroom. Mm-hmm. You know, we're still operating from this belief that it's okay, we're gonna we're gonna go back. So um, I really I take the lead on finding some AMI, which is alternative method of instruction packet, um, and I start comparing 
what other schools have done and seeing, you know, what can we take and borrow that other schools have done. We don't have time to like really sit down and create something from scratch. So what can we do to, you know, see what's going to work for our students? We create a Google Classroom um, for kids who don't have it. We work on getting Chromebooks distributed. So we set up a couple of days uh, during spring break, have families come and get Chromebooks. We offer Chromebook delivery if they're not able to come. But for some families, we have one Chromebook for a whole family unit. And there might be multiple students who have to share that one device. So that starts to become a problem as school ramps back up after spring break. We still have students who don't have reliable internet. So the idea of having live classes is hard to fathom. We also don't receive really any direction on this. It's sort of just, you know, we can't, we can't hold students responsible for not being able to join a Zoom if they don't have internet access. But then we're also being told you should be meeting with students daily. So we're getting this sort of conflicting information. Um, and then there's also just the human element. We're, I mean, you have to think March 2020, we're like, we're locked in. Nobody's going anywhere. People are afraid to go visit their families. You can't get inside half of the establishment in town. So there's also sort of this, this like dystopian environment. And you, ha you have to think, I have kids who are experiencing this. So after a couple of weeks, we did the AMI packet. It became clear. I think we found out on television that we weren't coming back the remainder of the school year. I don't know if other schools found out the same way. I know that our school found out by way of a press conference. <laughs> Teachers across the state of Arkansas found out about the final closures of Arkansas schools from a press conference. There was no advanced communication, no warning, no ability to plan for our kids. As you can imagine, the frustration on top of the fear was horrible. I'm like, I'm mad. I'm so mad at this point. I'm like, I feel so devalued. I feel like I'm not being treated as professional. I feel like this is incredibly unfair and unreasonable. And, but then I'm like, okay, we have to figure something else out. So I sort of developed this curriculum that consists of three parts. For me, there's a social emotional component. There's a physical activity component. And then there's the like academic component. So I'm trying to be reasonable. And I'm like, you know, this is like a historic moment. And there's a lot happening. And kids are not being supported through this very well. Even when she couldn't see them in person every single day, Sarah tried to give her kids some balance and some safety. But at the same time, she was pregnant during a pandemic. She was doing everything she could to help her students feel safe and cared for. But the cost was her own burnout and exhaustion. And it's not like things slowed down when schools in Arkansas reopened in the fall or even when her baby was born. In fact, Sarah went back to work only six days postpartum in August. She was working as a virtual teacher at the time. So six days in, when they couldn't find a sub, she went back to work and worked while her baby slept. And a big part of that decision was around her kids. She knew that they were living through a historic, traumatic moment, and she didn't want to leave them. She didn't want them to feel abandoned. So she was determined to be there for them in whatever way that she could. 
She was virtual for the entire first semester, taking care of her brand new newborn baby while teaching her students online. But even when she got back later on in the spring, things weren't the same. 90% of the students in her school attended virtually, which meant Sarah had to teach in a very different way even when she was back on campus in January. We had incredibly, incredibly low face-to-face numbers. I think there are a few reasons for it. One, some of those barriers we talked about were actually mitigated by being virtual. Kids didn't have to worry about missing the bus, didn't have to worry about issues getting to school, didn't have to worry about those uniforms. There were some of those things, actually, the pandemic helped in a way. I think also kids got really comfortable with very poor quality virtual instruction, uh, the end of the first year and the beginning of the second year. So there was sort of this belief that it'll be easy. It'll be just like it was. Mm -hmm. Uh, The governor announced that we couldn't fail kids in spring of 2020, which isn't true. (laughs) It's not true. If kids aren't ready to go into the next grade, we shouldn't be putting them in the next grade. But, you know, when everybody hears that on live television, it's hard to... Can't combat it. There was sort of this, like, mindset around that. And then I think also when we look at numbers of how COVID has affected different communities in Arkansas, and I mean globally, nationally, communities with higher populations of Black residents, Native American residents, and Latinx residents have higher rates, a higher mortality rate. So I think for my, and we have patient zero, right? So I think my students and their families have a very intimate relationship with COVID. And so, whereas you might look at Washington County data and see, yeah, they have really high positivity rates, their hospitalization rates are lower, mortality rate is lower. But then you look at Pine Bluff, Jefferson County, you have high hospitalization rates, high mortality, high everything. For me as a new parent, I had this huge shift Mm -hmm. that was like, I don't want to do this. I want to work. I don't want it to be in this, which was similar to the first time I left the classroom. Like I want, I love kids, but I can't, I feel like I'm contributing more to this issue than I'm helping to solve it. In 2021, I felt sort of a similar sense of you're contributing to inequity. You're not helping mitigate it. Um, So I couldn't, like, in good faith, by the end of the school year, I just couldn't fathom returning as a teacher. Sarah was done this time for good. The stress of teaching on top of the pressures of COVID, coupled with her newfound identity as a parent, it took her out of the classroom once again. But it wasn't without guilt. It wasn't without pain. It wasn't easy. And I don't know how many teachers like Sarah are out there, but I do know some of the most valuable individuals our students can ever have are the teachers who are like Sarah. And I don't know how many teachers like Sarah we lose every year. Empathetic, encouraging teachers who want the best for their students, who build true, deep relationships with their kids. To this day, Sarah still gets calls and texts from former students asking for references for jobs, help with their resumes, or just to chat. She still goes to football games. She goes to graduation. She celebrates every little achievement she sees them make. But she's not in the classroom anymore. 
Since leaving teaching, she's transitioned to the college level, where she now coordinates a dual enrollment program for high school students taking college coursework. Even though she now works year-round, she still enjoys getting to work with students, but with a few more boundaries that help her balance her personal and professional lives. Our next and final guest for this episode is a little bit different. She's actually a current teacher, still a teacher, but she has an important message for listeners about teachers' emotional well-being. Next up, I'd like you to meet Sydney Jensen, the 2019 Nebraska Teacher of the Year. I'm Sydney Jensen. I teach ninth grade English at Lincoln High in Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, And then I also am serving in this sort of dual role where I'm an instructional coordinator, um, which is an administrative role at my school. (laughs) Uh, And so I teach two sections of ninth grade English, and then the rest of my day is focused on um, instructional support for new and veteran teachers. So fun fact, I actually found Sydney through YouTube. You can find her there too. She did a TED Talk in 2019 about teachers and their emotional health, and I knew I wanted to have her on this episode to talk about her expertise. Sydney spent nearly a decade teaching ninth grade English at Lincoln High School in Lincoln, Nebraska, but in the past few years, she's been pulling double duty, teaching two periods a day and then spending the other three coaching teachers. To her knowledge, she's the only person in her massive district who teaches and works in an administrative position, and she's fought to keep her teaching every year since taking the position. Sydney gave the kind of interview where I wish I could just play the whole hour for you. I mean, honestly, it's full of insights, it's takeaways, and you can feel her passion for her students and fellow teachers. Unfortunately, I can't play the whole thing, but let's start with how Sydney got invested in teachers' emotional well-being. So the thing is, like, when you get down to brass tacks is that teaching is really hard. And I I feel like in teacher prep programs, the things that you hear about that make teaching hard um, are sort of like uh, distractors. (laughs) They're not the real thing. Like, yes, grading is exhausting and you can find yourself under a mountain of grading and that's really overwhelming. We've all as teachers dealt with parents who are difficult. They're helicopter parents or bulldozer parents, that kind of thing. Um, And that is really challenging. Of course, meetings are super frustrating sometimes. We've all sat through a thousand meetings that could have been an email, Um, but that's not like, those aren't the things that actually make teaching hard. Um, the things that make teaching hard are all of the things they don't prepare you for in those teacher prep programs. Like when, uh, there's a car accident that kills two of your students and you show up to work the next day with an email that says the subject line is some sad news. The number of emails in the year 2019 that we received that the subject line was some sad news was horrifying that's that was always the subject line and I mean it was like five or six in the matter of three months um one of my students uh went to Mexico during a break and was murdered there we had a terrible experience as a staff where one of our colleagues um died by suicide you know, it's just like, it's one thing after another and no one knows how to respond to that. Our, our leaders don't know how to respond to that. Like, (laughs) you know, what do you do when you have a staff of 160 plus people who are grieving, uh, and we don't have answers. And we're also trying to support 
our student body of 2,400 kids who are grieving and you don't even get over one traumatic event before the next one hits you in the face. Um, and that was really like the tipping point was, it was just like one thing after another, after another. And, um, the teacher who died, uh, by suicide, I mean, it was the second week of school. He was a second year teacher. Um, and so as an instructional coach, like I had worked with him as part of our new teacher cohort the year before. And I, you know, you really struggle with like, what could I have done differently? Like, were there better things I could have done to be supportive? Did I not pick up on, on something I should have? Um, and so like, I think the guilt that we felt as that person's colleagues was really difficult and, and it being so close at the beginning of the year, it was just this like heaviness that we all felt from there on out. I mean, I remember one person describe person describing it as like, it's like the air is so thick. We can't even move through it when we walk into the building. Sydney's year wasn't just tough. It was almost unbearable. One piece of bad news and not bad like the coffee pot broke, but truly heartbreaking bad news came out over and over and over again. In my experience teaching in schools of 400 students and now 1,400 students, I would say we probably get one to two sad news emails per year. The school Sydney works at clearly had a very, very, very bad year. But teachers get sad news emails all the time, and some are getting even more ever since COVID happened. And how do we expect them to cope not only with their own grief, but with the grief of their students? So in like a a totally different sort of side of things, at the end of 2018, I was named the 2019 Nebraska Teacher of the Year. Mm-hmm. And the Teacher of the Year program is like incredible. And teacher representatives from all 50 states plus like you know different territories Puerto Rico um American Samoa uh come together uh to meet one another as like a cohort and do all of this like incredible professional development and professional learning and so we got together in um California on the Google campus and we had this awesome session about storytelling Mm -hmm. and how we can harness telling the stories of our classrooms um, when we meet with policymakers to try and and make a difference and and make a change. Um, But one of the things that they had us do was with this sort of like brainstorming writing activity focused on like, what's your passion work? You know, if, if you get to have the ear of a policymaker for 15 minutes, what are you talking to them about? What's your goal? And the first thing I thought of was we're having this like really real struggle at Lincoln High where we have these like potent moments of absolute pain that we're all sharing and we don't know how to work through it. And the district doesn't know how to support us through it because 
no one ever expected that to happen. And it just happened to like come in this like dark cloud of other things that just like sort of snowballed. And it's on top of all of those other things that we deal with constantly, students in poverty, students experiencing abuse. And we as teachers know about those things, you know, often teachers are the ones reporting it. And so it's just like those things pile up and it becomes this weight that you carry and you don't get to leave it behind on your desk when you go home. Um, And that's really challenging. And so that's sort of how like I ended up talking about it. But Sydney's school wasn't the only one having a bad year. And once Sydney got a microphone to share her story, she started hearing from other teachers. And they were in the exact same boat. I got hundreds, if not thousands, of emails from people, not just all over the country, but all over the world, who were saying, oh my gosh, here's my story. Here's what we've experienced. And so it's just a reminder that like, these are not isolated incidents. (laughs) These are not things that like, oh man, Lincoln High is just having a really hard time. This is what teaching is. This is what it feels like to be a teacher. We're not just in charge of instruction. We are the caregivers of our students. We're the ones making sure that they are fed and feel cared for, that they're heard. Um, We're the ones who like are giving access to counseling. In some cases, we kind of are the counselor, even though we have little to no training in that um, because of budget cuts and staffing shortages. Um, And this is not something that just a few people are experiencing. This is an absolute occupational hazard. When I asked Sydney if she knew of any clear solutions to this problem, she said it's complicated. It has multiple layers. But the reality is there is a pretty simple answer that a lot of people just don't want to hear. I mean, the real answer is the thing that that I'll say people, but I mean districts don't want to hear because the real answer is compensation. That, that's it. I mean, we need, we need money for adequate access to mental and emotional wellness supports, not just for teachers, but for students as well. That costs money. Um, we also have to remember that a, a large percentage of our teachers are in very rural areas of the country where they may not even have access to a licensed <laughs> therapist. (laughs) Right. I mean, you know, we have people living 50 miles from a grocery store. Of course they don't have a licensed counselor that even if the district were paying for those resources, uh, that they would have access to it. And, you know, now with the pandemic at like one of the bright spots, I guess, is telehealth Mm -hmm. sessions. Um, But still, you know, those people deserve to be compensated and that takes money. And that's really hard. And I get that that's hard, but I also think that we're going to be in a serious teacher shortage crisis if we don't figure it out. And and I, I feel like, at least in the conversations that I've had with uh, district leaders and policymakers, is that they want an answer with a single dollar sign. And the actual answer is like $4 signs on Google, you know? <laughs> Well, and it's like, you get what you pay for and what you're paying for now is a crisis in the future. And, you know, like, I mean, we're in this situation now. It's kind of interesting. We're opening a new high school in August Mm -hmm. and we're opening another new high school in 2022. 
And so, you know, we're seeing what's coming on the horizon in terms of like, we've got a whole nother building we're going to need to hire and staff for. And then the next year, we're going to have the same thing. And people are not signing up to become teachers. There are a grand total of five certified science teachers who will be graduating from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln this year. There it is again. How can we expect teachers to keep carrying the burden of bad news over and over again when most teachers' insurance plans don't even cover mental health services or you don't get them paid for until you've paid a very high deductible? How long can a person keep enduring sad news emails on top of the trauma that students carry through the door every day before they crack? And how can we expect them to shoulder all of that if they're also struggling to pay bills or make rent? Sydney says a lot of teachers are starting to weigh the pros and cons, and in conversations with her, they aren't sure if staying if it's worth it or not. I'm in this interesting position in that, like, not only have I been a teacher in my building and now an administrator, but I'm I'm still a teacher in my building. And so I have these relationships with people that are a little bit different from someone who, you know, got hired to come to Lincoln High and be an associate principal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm sort of privy to some of people's like plans for next year and, and how they're feeling and thinking that and maybe they wouldn't be as as open to sharing with someone else that they don't have a relationship with um, who's in on the admin team. And the thing that I'm hearing over and over and over from people is like, I don't think I'm going to come back next year because I could just stay home with my kids. And yeah, it's a, you know, it would be tight financially, but like, it's just not worth it. And that's the thing too, is like when, when schools are underpaying and underappreciating staff, it doesn't take a lot of glitz and glamour to like (laughs) lure them away from it. And so I think that's part of it too, is like, you know, people can endure more trauma and heft (laughs) when they feel like they're appreciated and fairly compensated. And I think that that has always been a problem, but the pandemic has exacerbated it. One thing I wondered as I listened to Sydney was, has it always been like this? Has it always been this bad? Is it just getting worse because of COVID? Sydney had an answer for that too. Can you compare, is it possible to compare what teacher mental health was like pre and post pandemic um, as a teacher and as an instructional coach? Sure. So I think pre-pandemic, people were definitely acutely aware of how their mental health was suffering as a result of our exposure to secondary trauma. Um, Secondary trauma, I'm sure you know this, but um, secondary trauma is when you sort of absorb trauma from hearing the stories of other people's suffering. And so like that's pretty well documented with psychiatrists uh, and counselors who worked with survivors of 9-11. They weren't actually in the towers. They didn't see what other people saw, but hearing about it over and over and over as they work with those survivors, those counselors started to have nightmares as if they had been there. Um, And so the symptoms of secondary trauma are actually pretty much identical to the symptoms of of primary trauma, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, which is pretty wild. And 
not a ton of research is out there on that same sort of impact on teachers. Um, there have been a couple of bills that have sort of gotten stalled over the years where they're literally just trying to get funding to do the research. Um, we recognize secondary trauma as an occupational hazard in nursing and um, being a law enforcement officer, but we just don't have as much data to show that it exists with teachers, but we have tons of anecdotal data. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, teachers uh, very much recognize that it exists. Um, and so, you know, when we work with students and with families where we're hearing the stories of their poverty, um, when we're sitting in IEP meetings, 504 meetings, um, meetings with probation officers for students, all of that. And we hear the stories of the abuse that our our students have endured. When we see it in their writing, um, they write about their home lives. They share those, those details with us as we build relationships with us. That becomes sort of the the onus of the secondary trauma that then, then teachers are sort of left with. Um, The difference, though, is pre-pandemic, I think that there was this sort of community aspect of teaching um, where you had a little bit of like talk therapy with each other. You know, you sat together uh, eating lunch and you talked these things out. You you got together after school. (laughs) Um, You know, we call it an FAC, a Friday afternoon club, you know, like teachers get together from one department and, and go, you know, hang out after work on a Friday and you sort of decompress and you get a chance to talk about those things with people who get it. And then COVID happened and we were told, don't you dare eat in a room with your colleagues where your masks are down because if one of you tests positive, then now the whole department or the whole grade level team is now in quarantine and we're going to have to shut down the school. Um, you know, every restaurant is shut down, but also you're a bad person if you go and sit with a mask down and talk to your colleagues. And so teaching became 10 times more isolating. And, you know, I think for myself, like I have a super supportive husband, like he is such a wonderful life partner and he's such a great listener, but he doesn't get it. You know, he's not experiencing those same things. And there's a certain benefit to talking about people who are in the trenches with you that I think is really therapeutic. Um, And that's what we lost with COVID. Uh, And that's when things became more and more potent and exacerbated on top of the attacks that teachers were seeing from media of, you know, these lazy teachers, they don't want to get back to work, you know? And so like teachers very quickly went from being hero to zero and, and even um, more trauma on their kids too. Like, yes. And so they're absorbing even more trauma from their kids. The media is attacking them. They are isolated. It's a perfect storm. In Sydney school, in her English class, trauma is unpacked regularly and she witnesses all of it. For those who don't know, including myself before this interview, Lincoln, Nebraska is one of the largest resettlement cities in the United States. Sydney says there are over 30 unique languages spoken in her district, so there are tons of students from all walks of life. But unfortunately, many of their walks to Lincoln were not easy. And and yeah, and so, I mean, I've had students who were born in refugee camps. Students who fled war-torn countries, and then they share that with me as their teacher and with their classmates and English, you know, language arts is like, 
it's a pretty intimate subject, honestly. Yeah. Like express students- yourself. Like that's what a lot of it is, which is right. great. But in a, and I, and I don't say this negatively, like it's wonderful that y'all have all of those supports and everything, but in the context you're in of being the fifth largest migrant city in the U S that has the potential to put a lot of situations into an English class. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so like, you know, there are days that I come home and I think I like shock my husband with the stories that I tell him, you know, of situations that my students are facing or have faced, um, countless students who are struggling with the deportation of family members. And I can't imagine being separated from my child. And so then you start to like, that gets in your head and you dwell on it and you think about it and you sort of take on some of that grief and pain that that students have. And when there's no outlet to be able to share that or talk about it, um, uh, that makes teaching really hard. And I think that it breaks a lot of really great teachers. Maybe say with some of the isolation going away, are teachers getting better or is it all just kind of getting compounded at this point? I think it's all getting compounded at this point. And I think that things are are getting slowly worse. <laughs> I don't mean to be such a downer. Um, uh, we have, and and this is not unique to Lincoln High, a massive substitute teaching shortage. Mm-hmm. And every time a teacher is absent for COVID quarantining, for, you know, sick baby, for illness, aside from COVID, any other reason, um, it's really hard for us to get subs in the building. Um, So many of our substitute teachers are in a high risk age category for COVID. And like, to be blunt, schools are germ factories, (laughs) like, (laughs) you know? Um, especially like some pandemic fatigue has set in and we're not as great at wearing masks as a student body as we were when we first came back to the building. Um, and so I don't blame people at all who have subbed for years and years who are saying like, thanks for no thanks. I'm, I'm done. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, there, there there've been days where we have had over 90 classes that needed coverage. 90 individual sections out of 160 teachers or mm-hmm. 160 teachers. We each teach five sections a day. Okay. Um, yeah. And so that's like, I mean, you know, we're talking about like 20 teachers out <laughs> without a sub <sighs> and the rest. Yeah. And it's up to the rest of us to like step in and, and cover those classes because someone has to do it. And, you know, we're lucky that we get paid to do class coverages. So mm-hmm. So that's great. There are other districts who are just like, suck it up, buttercup. Somebody's got to go in there. Yeah. Me. me. Yeah. That is insane to me. Um, Just wild. But, you know, we have people who are covering seven, eight classes a week. And so that means that in a week, they're maybe getting three plan periods total. (laughs) Um, and that's exhausting for, for people. And so I think like that is exacerbating it. Um, it's also taking away that downtime that you share with colleagues to, to be able to be a community. Um, and I think like 
there are some districts who've made some interesting choices in trying to take things off of teachers' plates that um, I don't know if they're the right answer. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. I don't, I don't want to seem critical of like my employment. Um, Cause I think we, we do a lot of things really well, but for the now third year in a row, as a result of COVID, there's discussion about doing away with like the appraisal process as like a way to take something off the plate of teachers. For those who don't teach, appraisals are like evaluations. It's a formal system of giving a teacher feedback and letting them know how they're doing. For some, they can be a big source of anxiety, but for many, it's an opportunity to learn how you can grow and also to hear from your direct supervisor that they've seen you do your job and they know you're doing well. You get a f- affirmation out of the process. But according to Sydney, not having appraisals may not actually be a good thing. Um, the problem that I see with that is that uh, some of our teachers, part of the struggle is that they do need help with instruction. Yeah. And when you get feedback on your instruction, then you improve. And that hopefully makes things a little bit better every single day. Mm-hmm. Um And so we have teachers who haven't been given real feedback in four years now. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. (laughs) And it Um, makes teachers mad. Like there are some who say, please never come in my room, but a lot of them, and it's not, sometimes it's not even that they want feedback, but they want someone above them on the rank to walk in the room and see what they're dealing with and see what they're going through. Even if they can't fix it, just to know, hey, you walked in, you saw that, right? Okay, we're good. You get where I'm coming from now. Um, but it's like, you see this, help me, tell me what I can do. You've been a principal for 30 years. Surely you know something, right? For many teachers, appraisals are a chance to show their administrator what is happening in their rooms, to give them a peek behind the scenes so they know what they're working with on a daily basis. Sydney says without appraisal, some of that insight is missing from administrators, which is especially problematic as many teachers grow frustrated, feel ineffective, and underappreciated in their current working conditions. Um, but I also, like, I had an interesting conversation with my principal. Um, we came back into the building in August of 2020 and we were mostly in person, but we were doing this sort of hybrid situation with, we called it the AB schedule. Mm -hmm. So like based on students last name, the first half of the alphabet came to school certain days of the week and the other half of the alphabet zoomed in Oh, we did something very similar. It was a lot of fun. Oh my gosh. And so any given day, half of your kids are in front of you and half of them are on Zoom. And so you have to teach to both mediums simultaneously. And you're trying to like manage a Zoom chat (laughs) and manage a classroom. And it really just kind of blew up in our faces. It didn't go well. Um, But the conversation I had with my principal was he, he was like, I think that the people honestly, who are struggling the most right now are our best teachers. Because they're trying to do it well. Yes, they are used to doing it really well. And even though it's going better for them than it is for most, it's still not up to the standard that they're used to. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm used to putting in this amount of work and getting this result. And I'm putting in twice that amount of work and I'm getting 
a terrible result. I'm not even like anywhere close to, to what I would be accustomed to. And that's really hard, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I think we're kind of still in that. I've sort talked of to a mode. couple of teachers who have said, if I can't do it right, I'm not doing it. And that's why they left. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it's like, God, <laughs> mine eyes have seen the glory. Like I've, I've been to the mountaintop and now like, here I am. Mm-hmm. This sucks. <laughs> like I'm doing the best I can, but I mean, there are so many things that have happened this year. I like uh, humble brag. Like I don't want to be obnoxious, but like generally I have pretty good classroom management. Like I don't have a lot of issues in my class of, of, you know, students who are like having meltdowns or, or anything like that. And there have been multiple times since the pandemic that I just have to like stop for a second and breathe and remind myself like the children are not okay. No one is okay right now. It's not about me, (laughs) you know? And I think a lot of teachers need to hear that because you hit the nail on the head with something I struggled with so hard the first nine weeks. I, I was never perfect, am never perfect, but I had pretty good classroom management. I could make things work. Yeah. I have felt all the first nine weeks. I was like, I am the worst teacher on the face of the planet because I was having so many behavioral issues and the lessons just weren't going well and this and that. And it took a bit of a reality check before I was like, I am taking everything they're doing very personally. Cause I was also just getting mad. I was getting frustrated. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that is my own stress, but um, it took a while before I could do the same thing you just said, take a breath and realize this is not personal. These are just kids. Cause that's what I remember. I always told myself when I first started teaching, I was like, I never mind when a kid acts up, like I mind it, but it doesn't get under my skin because I'm like, you're literally a child. You have not learned better yet. And that's okay. That's why we're here to teach you that with adults. I'm like, "Uh -uh, you've had your chance. You should have learned this by now. But I think a lot of us, we're so stressed out. We lose sight of that right now. And everything feels like a very personal attack. And like, it's a very personal failure, even though it's like, no, you're, you're trying to dig a hole with like a spork right now. It's just not there. (laughs) Yeah. You know, so I, I got my master's from Doan University in ed leadership, but then like now I also teach a class at Doan as an adjunct professor on trauma-informed and trauma-responsive teaching. And like one of the things that we talk about is the difference between simple trauma, which is that like sort of single event trauma, you know, like you get into a bad car accident and then it is triggering and difficult to get behind the wheel for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, versus complex trauma, those sort of ongoing things, things like experiencing poverty, mm-hmm. that is complex trauma. And the pandemic is an example of complex trauma and communal trauma that we are all experiencing together. Uh, this is not just something that our students are experiencing, but like we're bringing our own baggage to work with it too. Um, we have teachers in our building who have lost parents and grandparents to COVID. Um, we have endured our fair share of abuse from the media, sort of the, the demonization of public school teachers and, and what that means. And so it's also a thing like sometimes I find myself getting short uh, with colleagues or with students. And then, you know, as a teacher, you, you hold yourself to these really high standards. At least I definitely know that I do and they're unattainable and you beat yourself up over every little thing like that. You know, pre pandemic, I would beat myself up over those 
like just dumb things where it's like, oh my gosh, I called a kid by the wrong name on the hundredth day of school. Mm -hmm. I am the worst teacher on planet earth. I feel two inches tall, you know? And now it's like, I got frustrated and yelled at my whole class because the Wi-Fi dropped, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's just like, I suck. I'm trash. I'm a terrible teacher. Um, And it just, I find that it's harder to bounce back from it now than it used to be. Well, we're a lot less resilient. We don't have that community there. Like you said, we can't just go to our teacher friend next door and be like, you will not believe the horrible thing I did. And then they'll be like, well, listen to the thing I did. It's okay. Everything's fine. Da, 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 da. And it's right. There's no mental health day because you can't afford a sub and we're just tired of it and we're sick of it. We want to go back to normal and we never will. Right. We want to go back to normal, but we never will. That's the reality so many teachers have faced right now. And our students and their parents and our administrators and everyone else involved in our schools. Now, how are we supposed to cope with that on top of all of the other sad news that we get on a regular basis? How do we cope with the burnout that comes with being a first year teacher in a new school in a new state without any support? How do we cope with compassion fatigue that comes with witnessing our students' hardships day after day with no way to fix the systemic inequities that affect them so regularly? How do we cope when we feel like we're at our least effective selves since this whole thing started, when at the end of the day, we just want to sit in our cars and stare out into the parking lot for 20 minutes to try and decompress and desensitize ourselves just enough for the drive home? We fake it till we make it. But unfortunately, not everyone makes it. Teacher stress is at an all-time high, and right now we're waiting to see if this mass teacher exodus is really going to happen, or if it's just a bunch of talk on social media. Whether a flood of teachers exit the building this May or not, the reality is that teachers have been leaving in droves for decades. That's why we have programs like Greg and Sarah's designed to place provisionally licensed teachers in schools that otherwise couldn't find teachers at all. But what are we doing to keep them here to help manage their stress? Are we providing coaching to help them improve and feel more confident? Are we putting policies in place to ensure there is access to mental health services, even in rural areas? In most places, the answer is no. Next week on Green Apple Pod, we'll continue the conversation on teacher stress with two more guests, and we'll dive deeper into the research on secondary trauma. As always, thank you for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. If you found this episode interesting and enjoyed it, please give us a rating and a review. The most important element of these stories is the lived experiences of teachers and education stakeholders. To share your perspective or to give feedback on this episode, please leave a voicemail or text message at 334-472-4019. You can also send a message through our website, passion to progress dot com slash contact or direct message our social media pages on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. This has been Green Apple Pod, hosted by Jessica Enderlin Natsum and produced by Ruth Amundsen. If you would like to follow along and learn more, please subscribe to our host organization, Passion to Progress, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. We are available for listening through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Podbean.